Doug. All right, everybody, if you have a Bible, let's go to the book of John. We're going to go to chapter um, eight. Let's go to John chapter eight. I'm just guessing John chapter eight. If you're new to our community, so am I. And uh, and it has just been so much fun. If Justy, my wife and I, if we were to accept every one of your kind invitations, we would not eat alone for the next four years. You are just a remarkably friendly community. And I need to skip some meals. I think we can all agree. Uh, John chapter eight. We'll start in verse 48. What we've been doing the last couple of weeks is we're trying to establish what is of first importance. If you remember in First Corinthians 15, uh, Paul writes to a very, very crazy and divided church. Uh, he's given them a whole bunch of instruction, theological instruction, ethical instruction. But he says at the very end in high school, good morning, high school, good morning. Yes, well done. Well done. You know, and whenever I mean, can we agree whenever I'm facing this direction, you guys have the best seats. So, uh, so one of the things he says to them right at the end of his, his book uh, is he says, hey, I want to remind you of what is of first importance. And he goes on to talk about the fact that Jesus uh, was buried, that Jesus was crucified, that Jesus appeared, that Jesus was risen. And he says that these things are of first importance. Everything else is secondary. And so we've wanted to just spend a little bit of time reminding ourselves about how great this Jesus is. And that last week, remember, we talked about the idea that the reward of following Jesus is Jesus and nothing else. You get other things thrown in, but until you're convinced he's the treasure, following him is just going to feel like a burden. This morning, we want to look at a little different idea. John chapter 8, verse 48. There was a lot of confusion about who this Jesus was when he was walking the earth. The Jews answered Jesus, aren't we right in saying that you are Samaritan and demon possessed? Now, I don't care what culture you're from. Being called demon possessed is never a compliment. Can we, can we agree? And, and being a, a Samaritan, that was somebody who was considered by Jews. They were half-breeds. These were the ancestors of Jews who'd intermarried with non-Jewish fo- folks years and years and years and years before. And so at least among some of the religious folks, they called him a Samaritan and demon possessed. Go if you would to Mark chapter 3. Now we're going to do five passages really quickly. If I lose you, we'll put them on the screen. But for time's sake, I've got a zip. Mark chapter 3. Mary, uh, we hear her story, the mother of Jesus, and all the things she treasures up in her heart. But there were times the rest of Jesus' family doesn't really get it. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went out to take charge of him. Why? For they thought he was out of his mind. So, uh, and again, I'm sure our parents thought that about us at some point, but when you're the Messiah, uh, uh, it's, it's a, you kind of want your family behind you a little bit. And, and, and we know they come around towards the end of the story, but at least... Uh, in the middle of it, they thought he was crazy. Go if you would to Matthew 16. Really quick, we want to look at all of the confusion surrounding Jesus. The Jews thought, at least some of them, thought he was demon-possessed and a Samaritan. His family, at least at one point, thought he was crazy. When Jesus asked his disciples, Matthew 16, verse 13, 
When Jesus asked His disciples, He came to the region of Caesarea Philippi and asked them, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Now, we know this is the very significant point when Peter kind of gets it right, at least in theory. He has to be corrected along the way a little bit about what it meant that Jesus really was Messiah. But I want you to notice, there was a, when Jesus was walking the earth, it wasn't real clear to a lot of folks who exactly he was, right? His family thought he was crazy at one point. The Jews thought he was demon-possessed and a Samaritan. And a lot of the crowds thought, well, he's John the Baptist or Jeremiah come back from the dead. But there is one group in the Gospels that always recognize who Jesus is. Flip back to the book of Mark. There's one group in the Gospels who always recognize who Jesus is. Mark 1. Did I say Mark 3? I meant Mark 1. And for those of you who... um, We'll go to Mark 1, Mark 3, and Mark 5 just real quick if you want to... I don't know if that helps know what's coming. Mark chapter 1. Now listen, I'm in a great mood today and it seems like I'm alone and it just, it, it, no, hey, security, we got a, we got a yeller, Mark chapter one. So there's always one group that knows who Jesus is. Verse 23, just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, what do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, what, what the demon is doing there is trying to name Jesus to have authority over Jesus. This was an ancient form of spiritual warfare. But notice, compared to, hey, you're demon-possessed in a Samaritan, you're crazy, or you're one of the old prophets come back from the dead... The Holy One of God is kind of a pretty exalted title. Would you agree with that? Go to Mark chapter 3, verse 11. Whenever the impure spirit saw Him, they fell down before Him and cried out, what? You are the Son of God. Flip to Mark chapter 5. Just like we said we would. Verse 7. He shouted at the top of His voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Okay, so, who has the best theology in the Gospels? Demons do! Right? I mean, everyone else is pretty confused for most of the story, but demons could pass any multiple choice seminary test you could give them. Right? Now, One of the things I find very interesting is that in the American church, we quote John 3.16 all the time, right? God so loved the world, He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes shall not perish but have eternal life. But what does it mean to believe? See, for a, a lot of my life, I thought believing meant having the right answers. But if that's all it means then demons believe too. Think about it this way. I I grew up in the great state of Ohio. And any Ohio? Okay, oh, oh, a remnant. (laughs) And, And in Ohio, 
the DMV isn't horrible. And, and, and so when I moved out here, when I moved out here, I, I just, it said the DMV opened at 8, so I show up at 8 o'clock thinking, well, that's when it opens. I didn't realize you had to get in line three hours before the thing opened. So I have to get a new driver's license. I'm in the DMV line. I'm thinking, this is awful. And, and you know, two hours to wait to talk to somebody and say, what do I have to do to get to change my driver's license? And they say, well, you have to take a test. And I said, okay, is it a written test or a driving test? And they said, you just have to take a written test. Oh, so I, you don't test me on how I actually drive. That's awesome. And so they hand me a book. And I say, well, how do I take the written test? And they say, well, there's a two-hour line over there. So for two hours, I memorized the book. And, and, and it, the book just contained information on driving. Right? It was how many feet you know, do you need to keep between the car in front of you? And if there's a bike lane, when can you, how, how close can you be to the stoplight before you turn right and get over to the bike? I mean, just that driving theory. No one tested me on how I actually drove. Many in the American church think a relationship with Jesus is just like the DMV. It doesn't matter how you really live as long as you know the correct information and memorize the book. That is not believing biblically. Because even demons do that. Believing biblically is much more like going to a party, knocking on the door, the host opens the door, and if the host knows you, you're in. And if he doesn't, you're not. Those are the images that Jesus gives. And so what we want to do is we want to beat up on the idea that believing in Jesus just means memorizing correct information about Him. Now, is correct information absolutely critical? Yes! Right theology is critical. Yes, I've spent my life teaching right theology. But it doesn't matter if you don't trust it. And the words that we translate faith or belief all have to do with ideas that are like trust, being won over by, being firmly persuaded by. Go to James chapter 2. James makes this same argument to some Jew, a Jewish audience he's writing to. James chapter 2, verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Now, he's writing to Jewish folks. The belief that there is one God is the central declaration of Judaism. You believe there's one God. Good. What does he say? Even demons Believe that. In other words, if all believing is, is having correct information, that puts you in league with demons. Biblical believing is right information that you come to trust in your real life. And so all James is doing is, I, I, I was driving down 16 lights on Baston Cherry this morning. Awesome. And there's a little senior adult center there, and right on the placard it said, actions speak louder than... Right, so, suppose on the back of my truck, 
I had a bumper sticker that said, I know the cure for male pattern baldness. And then, and so you followed me because you're like, I want that. And then you saw me get out of the truck. Would you believe the bumper sticker or the cure or, or, or the head? Right? You believe the head. Suppose, ladies, he says he loves you, but he belittles you in public. He never returns your calls. Right? He cheats on you incessantly. Does he love you? No! So whenever your actions conflict with how you live, how you live is the better indicator of what you really think. That's all James is saying. We are saved utterly, absolutely, by grace alone. The gracious initiative of God. There is not one of us that can earn or merit or deserve our way into His kingdom. But Paul says we are saved by grace through faith. Well, then the question is, well, what's faith mean? If all faith is, is the gracious, thankful response to God's gracious initiative, then what does it mean to have faith? Well, does it just mean correct information? If that's all it is, no. See, correct information is the basis of faith, but it's not faith itself. So, Dan, could you hand me that chair? So, suppose... I'm a chair salesman. Thank you, Dan. And I am introducing you to the Magnum PI 8000 black chair. This chair is made for husky men. This chair is made for men of substance. This chair is tolerated by men up to whatever, 300 pounds. And suppose you said, great, I want you to sit in it. And I said, I wouldn't. Right? You'd say, well, I don't believe the chair could hold me. Right? Because what's believing the chair could hold me? This is believing. See, we live in a world, a Christian world, that confuses professing faith with actually having it. And so we just want to beat up on the idea that the goal of this whole enterprise is just to get you correct information. It is that and a whole lot more. The information is the basis of our faith, but it's not faith itself. Go, if you would, to Luke chapter 5. What does it look like to have biblical faith? If it means, if faith means to trust, to be won over, to be firmly persuaded. Luke chapter, Luke chapter 5. What does it mean to have faith? She and I have a history. You don't know it. I, I once asked her, I was, I was speaking up at Forest Home, and I, I once asked her to pray for the talk. She came up and she said, Jesus, help the speaker to be good. <laughs> this was after she'd heard me a couple times. That was the part that was worrisome. Luke chapter 5. One day, what does it mean to have faith? One day Jesus was teaching Pharisees and the teachers of the law were sitting there. They come from every village of Galilee, from Judea and Jerusalem. The power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. And some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. 
and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles of the roof. Now, brothers and sisters, see, that'd be easy here. We got a hatch. <laughs> then, then, you, and scholars kind of reconstruct this scenario as, fo- as follows. That, that, that you'd have like a single room, maybe, or two room, single story sort of place. And then, and then some of the, like, nicer homes would have an upper room. Uh, and, and it would be built on top of the lower room, but it wasn't accessible from the inside. There wasn't an internal staircase. You had this staircase on the outside. And so what, what people think happened is that you got some friends trucking this guy along, and, and there's no way you're getting in the house. So they go up the outside stairs into the upper room so that they have to dig through the, just the one layer of tile or whatever it was that separated the lower room from the upper room. And they start digging. Now, can you imagine Jesus of Nazareth is here, blessed are so and so and so and so. And all of a sudden, they're just little faint specks of dust and straw and mud and tiles. And and you can imagine the owner of the house, who would have been sitting next to Jesus, now fighting through the crowd. And you can imagine the poor paralyzed guy up in the upper room going, hurry, hurry, hurry. And how big... How big does the hole have to be to lower the guy down? I mean, this isn't a small little hole. I mean, this is crazy. Now notice what Jesus does. When Jesus saw their what? He said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Okay, hold on a second. First, Jesus doesn't get mad. I I assume he was kind of smiling when this was going on. Secondly, he comments on their faith. So it wasn't, Jesus isn't saying, hey, if you dig a hole through a roof, you're really my disciple. But the faith that led them to do that, he comments on. And then he says the weirdest thing. It's a paralyzed guy. And he looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. Now, How do you forgive sins in the first century? You go to Jerusalem, you go to a priest, you offer a sacrifice. No peasant is allowed to wander around the countryside just forgiving people. Only God does that kind of thing. But if you're the paralyzed guy, how excited are you to get forgiveness? I mean, I heard you heal people, Jesus. Come on. And so Jesus just says, your sins are forgiven. In the Greek here, forgiven means dismissed. Your sins are dismissed. The Pharisees and teachers began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow that speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus, knowing their hearts, what's he do? Hey guys, which is easier? To heal somebody or forgive somebody? Well, to the Jewish way of understanding, forgiveness is something only God can do. So forgiveness is harder than healing. So Jesus says, just so you know, I have the authority to forgive people. He heals the man. What was the basis of the healing? Well, evidently, Jesus says, your faith. Did these people believe? 
Yeah. How do we know? They dug through a roof. Was it the digging through the roof that saved them? No, no, no. It was the one-overness that compelled them to do so. So you have the faith of demons, which is a, an intellectual sort of believing. And then you have the faith of somebody like this, who digs a hole through a roof. Go if you would to Luke 7, one more story. Come on, high school. Listen, I mean, I know Scott Ballon is like, I know he's awesome. And I appreciate that you'd sit here and tolerate me in order to get to him later. But I, I expect a little more than sneezing out of this whole section, okay? I'm just, just hoping for more. Luke chapter 7. Jesus, of course, never says no to a dinner invitation. So when one of the Pharisees, verse 36, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner, he went to the Pharisee's house and what? Reclined at the table. Now, that it doesn't mean you're at a lazy boy at Thanksgiving like dinner. It, it, you, you, uh, again, we're guessing, but what we think's going on is that you would have, especially at a Pharisee's house who was middle middle to upper class, you'd have you'd have an outer courtyard with a half wall surrounding it, and 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 in the middle of the courtyard you'd have a, a low table, maybe maybe two feet high. You wouldn't have chairs, you'd have pillows. And what you would do, I mean, these weren't like quick microwave meals. I mean, you'd be there for a couple hours, and so what you would do is you'd lean in on your left elbow. You wouldn't use your left hand to eat. That, you'd use your left hand for other things. So you'd lean in on your left elbow, and you'd reach into the table and you'd eat. But reclining at the table meant you were leaning in and your feet were out behind you. Now, what would happen is people would gather around the outside of the courtyard, the Amha Aretz, the people of the land, the unsavory, the poor. Some of them would be hoping for a handout. So if, if you were, if you had food left over from your meal, you'd throw it to the people out in the courtyard. Other people, if they were really bold, would lob in a question for the, the, like the theological elite to discuss. But there was one big rule especially when a Pharisee was throwing a party like this, that people on the outside never approached people on the inside. People on the inside were ceremonially clean and cared about that. People on the outside were not. So, of course, Luke wouldn't tell us this story if it were just a normal dinner party. Verse 37, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life. Now, this isn't someone who'd made a mistake Okay, this is somebody whose pattern of living had been totally against what God had intended. This is somebody who had a reputation. She shows up. When she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet. Now that, in English, that's like, what? But if he's reclining, you get that. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, do you think the dinner party came to a screeching halt at that point? Oh my goodness! Do you know how many rules she violated right then? 
Rule number one, you never come from the outside to the inside. Rule number two, women never touched men in public. Rule number three, unclean never touched clean. Rule number four, a woman who was modest never let down her hair, which she had to do in order to wipe his feet. Talk to me. That's, that's infant for amen is what that is. I mean, you, you don't understand. It'd be like it'd be like interrupting communion or a wedding or something. I mean, it just this was scandalous, and Jesus lets it happen. And notice what he says, verse forty-eight. He looks at her. He actually rebukes the host of the dinner party. And then looks at her and says what? Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this that's forgiving sins? And Jesus said to the woman, You're what? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So, is it a surefire guarantee that all you have to do is cry and interrupt the dinner party and you're in? No. It's not what He's doing. Is this woman won over? Does this woman sit in the chair? Would, does she believe? Absolutely. It was the faith that sat behind her actions. Brothers and sisters, we began by just noting, listen, all kinds of guesses about who this Jesus was, but demons had great answers. They knew who He was. We are people who believe we are saved by grace through faith. Absolutely not worthy, not earning, not deserving. But what does it mean to have faith? Is it just the memorizing of the DMV book? Or does it matter how you actually drive? What we're trying to say is biblically the concept of faith or belief is intimately related to how you live. And that if your profession of faith says one thing, but your life says another, which is louder? How many of you believe that God is good? Then why do you worry about money? No, really. Why, why for some of you who believe that God is good, why is your state of well-being in this world dependent on the state of the economy? How many of us believe that God is good? Then why do we act out sexually if His commands are for our good? I mean, you, you, you realize that what we've set up in American Christianity is we count professing faith as faith. So I can talk about how great the chair is. But until you sit in it, you haven't trusted it. And so my fear is what Jesus says in Matthew 7. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And I will say, I never knew you. We'll say, yeah, 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 but we can pass the seminary test. And Jesus would say, demons can do that. So theology matters. But only if you trust it. If we believe in the resurrection of the dead, why are we terrified of dying? Now, hallelujah that we're all in process. And hallelujah, perfection is not what's asked for. Right? It's the finished work of Jesus that saves us, not our own performance in it. But let us not settle for mere intellectual knowing when Jesus has something far more compelling to offer. Go to John chapter 20. 
I mean, it feels like someone's preaching. I don't know who it is, but it feels like somewhere in America, someone is preaching right now. John chapter 20. We'll start verse 30. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you might what? Believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. See, Jesus doesn't only answer the question, what happens if you die tonight? Jesus also answers the question, what happens if you live tonight? See, it's not just He gives us the ticket to heaven. Hallelujah for the ticket to heaven. In John's usage, the word life here means eternal life. And in John's usage, eternal life doesn't just mean life in heaven. It means life with God. Now. And in heaven. And so, brothers and sisters, rather than people who be people who just walk around with professing, What if we actually began to work on believing the information we professed? And isn't that what our world is looking for? Right? Go to Acts chapter 9. One last passage, just because we haven't been to enough, evidently. Acts chapter 9. Notice how the earliest followers of Jesus described themselves, even before they were Christians. Acts chapter 9, meanwhile, Saul, who we know later becomes Paul, or is Paul, but, you know, read it. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the what? The way, capital W. Six times in the book of Acts, the Christians are known as followers of the way. And there's a deep perspective sitting behind that that comes from Micah chapter 3 prepare the way for the Lord and Isaiah 35 a way of holiness out of exile a new exodus I mean it's brilliant but it also is subversive of every other form of Judaism because they did not present themselves as another sect of Judaism or denomination of Judaism they presented and understood themselves as the way of salvation for everybody Jew and Gentile alike But this way was not just a way of believing, it was a way of living. And the book of Acts is filled with that. Hey, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Right? I mean, the early world, the early uh, early church astounded the ancient world because of the way they treated each other, just as Jesus intended. These days, the greatest argument against Christianity are Christians. I mean, literally, the atheist Michael Martin, his number one argument is he will just say, who wants to be like them? Whereas for the early church, the number one argument they gave for why they should be tolerated in the Roman Empire was, who's going to take care of your poor? When plagues come, who's going to take care of the people dying? Who goes and rescues exposed infants? See, for them, the resurrection of Jesus didn't just change life once they died, it changed life here and now. And hallelujah for life after we die. But let's not just settle 
until we've stepped fully into the full invitation of the Lord Jesus. When you play Simon Says, and you kick stuff over like I just did. When you play Simon Says, if I said Simon Says clap, what do you do? Oh, awesome. Try that. When you play Jesus Says, what do you do? We memorize it. We form groups to study it. We learn it in the original language. I got an idea. Let's love our enemies and then debate predestination. How about that? How about instead of obsessing over when Jesus is coming back, let's bless those who persecute us. No, no, no. That, it matters when He's coming back. And it matters about pre- That matters. But I wonder if it's easier to have a relationship with a doctrine than it is to have a relationship with a Messiah who's going to invite us to do things that are antithetical to the way nor- normal human life is done here on earth. See, if I looked at my little boy, Nate, and I said, hey, Nate, go clean your room. And Nate came back and, and, I, and I said, well, what would you do? And he said, well, I, I, remember, I remembered what you said. I memorized it. <laughs> and, and I got a, a group of my friends together and we studied what it would look like if I cleaned my room and how great that would be. What would I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Right? What Jesus says. There's a sense in which, men and women, and hallelujah, our theology, I mean, please hear that. That matters. But that's the beginning of the journey, not the end of it. The goal is to create a community of people who would not allow roofs to stop them from getting to Jesus. To create a group of people who would not care what their friends or their families think. Who would ever, if you have to come out from a wall or let down your hair, it doesn't matter if people were scandalized. If you just could be close to this, Jesus should do it. See, a group of people like that would change the world. Because they believe. So would you stand? We're going to spend the fall studying this way of this Jesus Because we firmly believe that we're saved by grace. But the only proper response to God's initiative towards us is faith. What does faith look like? It looks like sitting in a chair, tearing off a roof, or breaking all kinds of social protocols just to be near Him. So I want to pray. Would you close your eyes for a moment as we continue to worship? Lord Jesus... We want You to increase in this place and everything else to decrease. Lord Jesus, we desire to be people who see You as getting bigger the more we're with You and the longer we're with You. We pray, Lord, that we would be more in love and more passionate about You the longer we follow You. And so, Lord, only Your Holy Spirit, it says in 1 Corinthians, only the Holy Spirit can bring us to the place where we say that Jesus is Lord. And so with our lips, we say Jesus is Lord. But God, we want that to be true of our lives too. So would You bring conviction where that's needed? Would You bring courage where that's needed? And as the disciples said to You, Lord Jesus, we pray also, Lord, increase our faith. 
Lord, increase our faith. Allow us to trust and to believe, to be one over. And so, Lord Jesus, would you have your way in this place?